welcome to the new writing series. Thank you so much for coming. Um, and today, how many of you are in Manika Banyaris's intercultural writing class? Okay, do you know how lucky you are? Do you have any idea you do? You do because you've already been doing it. So it's not like a big secret. Okay, um, so I wish I were in that class. And I might come be in that class because I'm so excited that Alisa is teaching for UCSD this quarter, and I hope that she can come back again in the future. Um, she's uh, she's reading today, as you know, and um, you are in for an amazing treat, and also to have your ears burned off with uh, fabulousness and grotesquery, um, and history, and the present, all of it. So the first so um, so uh, Ariel Bergdorf is gonna introduce Melissa, and I now introduce Ariel Bergdorf, our first <laughs> MFA student. Yay! And thank you for organizing the event. Do I need to press on or anything? not really important. Uh, <laughs> uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing Melisa last week and I volunteered to introduce her for this event and then I was immediately like oh shit this is a lot of pressure uh, and like I had all these great ideas but then my first instinct for how to introduce her was super gross and hallmark it was like I was just gonna be like, she's really inspiring, you guys. <laughs> Which I feel like that's true, and I feel like her students probably know that, and I feel like she's an inspiration. But I also don't feel like that word really does her justice. Um, so I thought about it more. And I think that there's two main things that you need to know before hearing her read. So two main things you need to know about her is number one, Melisa is definitely a member of the Bad Girls Club. <laughs> Uh, but maybe not girls, I think she would say malas mujeres, um, <laughs> women. Um, and by that I just mean that there's a lot of powerful people and entities who feel like she's a thorn in their side and who would really <laughs> like to see her fail and who would ultimately like to see her voice erased. And she doesn't give a fuck about that. Um, she refuses to back down, she refuses to be silent, and she refuses to change herself in any way that would make oppressors more comfortable. And she does this from a place of humor and love. Uh, and the second thing that you should know about her is that she's seen some shit. <laughs> she's a survivor of this crazy, fucked up world that we all live in and has fought a lot of battles for queer folks and Chicanas and sex workers and working class people and abuse survivors and is still fighting those battles today. And at UC Santa Cruz, she studied under Gloria Anzaldúa, Angela Davis, Terry Moraga, and then she became an accomplished slam poet and teacher in her own right, and toured the countries in the 90s, and more recently with the queer punk feminist group Sisters Fit. And she's a novelist, and she has a new book out that's called Life is Beautiful, People are Terrific. And it's available from Lady Box, but unfortunately not here today, I think. But she has <laughs> a last small press. Oh, I know. But she has beans and patches and stuff, so you should definitely check that out. Uh, but I think all this shit that she's seen and lived through all these adventures, she had enable us her uh, enable her to tell us some really fantastic stories, and I'm really excited to hear what she has to share with us. 
So, without further ado, Melida Banyadas. Thanks, guys. Yeah, sorry. It looks like this, the book. So you know it's fucking real. <laughs> I didn't make it up. I really didn't. I did, however, because we couldn't get books, I made zines for you guys. They're a book. I made them, and they're this poem that I'm about to read you. It's called Dig. I want to tell you about my grandmother and planting roses, how getting the soil just right for the seeds requires your whole body. Crouched, hunched, both hands, both arms, working, massaging, rotating. My Marita didn't use a shovel, just some water, her hands, patience. She waited for the ground to invite her, and when the black mud slid through her fingers, she went in. And in this story, I am 11 years old, and I go with her. Though it starts slow, it quickly gathers momentum, and there we are, pushing, sweating, all smells, all dark and thick. It's always an ugly business getting to something so beautiful, she would say. Can you turn the earth, mija? I keep going, find my chest to the ground, my neck bent, I'll be honest with you. I was holding back then because I was afraid to get dirty, afraid I wouldn't get the stains out of my knees, afraid to be surrounded, to be held. I didn't know if I'd make it back from the mud. Effort, she'd whisper. Keep going. The sun to my back, I pushed to get through. The moment when the seeds could drop was so close, and I wanted it to happen, but didn't know if my hands could get the job done. But we kept going, and before I knew it, I felt something give, and I stopped, took a small breath in my black girl chest, and said, no, just sit. Just sit for a moment, Ethel would say. I couldn't get the freeway over my Tita's house in North Hollywood or the wires buzzing with electricity or someone's favorite show or a phone call goodbye. I only remember the sky. It was so blue. And a small wind found my face. I want you to know this is how you make me feel. When I'm thick in you, when I fall into you like a fool who only knows trust and this moment when the whole of myself lets loose, I am up to my arms in you. Can I put my chest to the altar of your heart? I'll be honest with you. I'm not holding back. I'm here to make a mess of you because only the brave aren't afraid to get lost. They live to get consumed. So let me get lost in you. Can you turn the earth, Mija? Can you let me use both hands to see inside your pain, your past, your desire, your hurt, and write a different ending? I enjoy the dark, the quiet. It's always an ugly business getting to something so beautiful. I want you to know that I come from a long line of growers. And I am not afraid to dig. Can you hear me up there? Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Feel free to like, as I like to say, let your crazies out. You know, hoot and holler and get excited about writing. Once upon a time we did that before we came to school and studied it. <laughs> but don't worry, I'll bring you right back to that fun place. I want to dedicate my reading today to my class. They're here. They're, um, this class is not a game. This is definitely, the class is called um, Outlaws and Outcasts, uh, Writing the Reign of a Rebel. Um, definitely not a game. It's a lot of work, and it's also a lot of work because it requires us to go to some very um, honest places 
that we don't normally get asked to go to an academia. And my students have really been showing up, so I don't know. <laughs> because props. Um, I'm gonna do kind of like, uh, Anna Joy kind of was like, no, no, Anna Joy asked me to do this, so I thought I'd do a greatest hits. This is the last 20 years of my career. Are you ready? Here we go. <laughs> so once upon a time, there was a girl named Missy Fuego, and she was a big fucking mess. And she went to San Francisco in the 90s. And somehow, someone told her that writing would be a really good way to get out of that mess. So I tried it out. My first book was Poems, and it's called Say With Your Whole Mouth. It's out of print, which is common with poetry books. But I'm going to be reading from that. It was published in 2003. It was published on a woman of color press called Monkey Press. This is important to know um, because I think that if you really care about your work, find a place where someone will care about your work with you. And for me, as a woman of color writer, women of color presses feel very invested in that type of connection. I'm still friends with this woman, even though this press has been defunct for 10 years. I mean, that's the kind of community we bond, we form. So this is an older poem, and it's called. This was actually one I wrote very early. This is one that I actually wrote based on a Gloria, uh, fucking Gloria prompt. Always Gloria. I always say fucking Gloria because she was always so much work. <laughs> I used to call her La Nags a lot, like how we call La Smiley, La Homegirl. I was like, La Nags a lot. <laughs> because she was the type of professor who would come up to you and be like, hey, Anna Joy, what about that book you were talking about? And you're like writing like 50,000 things. She's like, fuck Gloria, fuck. Like, I was just talking about it. And then she would like come and like, what about that zine you were doing? Oh my God, I don't have time for that. And then I would just be like, why, why are you always like bugging me, Gloria? I had no idea that I was so lucky to be bugged by Gloria <laughs> Which shows you what a fucking ding dong I was then. Like, why are you that guy's alive? You're always bothering me. And she goes, well, you know, I've seen you flirting with quitting. And she's a bad mistress. I said, you shouldn't mess with quitting. And she would always say that. So she wanted us to write a poem that was something like a lullaby. So this is called... This is one I wrote called On a Day She Sung Herself to Sleep. The story doesn't remember you. It may make excuses for this, but even that is out of necessity rather than embarrassment. The story does exactly what it's told. Lie on the page, a new body against sheets. Say you mean it, mean what you say, and see the bleeding near the end. This story doesn't go back on its word, but rolls off the counter, staining the linoleum in your best shoes. It apologizes, makes mistakes twice, and has regrets. This story doesn't remember us. It doesn't remember lightning, lavender, or any moment that would have meant something, even 20 years from now, holding hands in some rocking chair in some blanket season on some porch where the sky is pink and the air saturates our skin. This is not a story meant to be passed down to grandchildren or told over tea or beer or hung next to the bathroom mirror or on the side of a bus carrying people with groceries, books, and way better things to do. At 5 a.m., this story will wake from sleep with possibility on its lips from a dream about swimming and boats with too many people and music that's found nowhere except in the back of the mind, the place where stained glass lives and people kneel when they enter. 
This story will go to the gym, park, ocean, or any place with a jukebox containing country music and the need to cry in public. This story doesn't need to be told. It doesn't care if it's in order, or likes waffles with syrup, or sunsets, because despite it all, this story knows it's still a story. It has confidence in itself and hugs itself often. This story bays on the outskirts of town and wears nothing but CH sounds that are machine washable. Choose, mucho, churro, child, cha-cha. It likes cha-cha the best and even wears it two days in a row. <laughs> this story is not bruised, torn, or unable to swallow after a big meal. This story makes peace with itself, comes to terms, and doesn't remember you. The accident you became. The fall that wasn't broken. The leftover birthday cake everybody craves but nobody takes home because they know better. <laughs> no, it will have none of that here. None of that here. Now I'm just gonna keep going. This is an excerpt from a poem I wrote called War Poem. And uh, I'm gonna read you the excerpt that, I'm gonna read you a couple of those. Everything stops and then you have to rearrange your schedule. The notice of bombing came at an inconvenient time. She had just decided what she was going to do with her life. Keep writing, don't change anything. Consider a project about love and sex. Now there is bombing and plans have to be changed again. Keep writing. Sitting in the apartment, she notices dust in various points of the room. She considers sweeping it up, moving it out of the way, but it seems pointless. A normal life was too good to be true, and a war was definitely not in her plans. The word fuck came to her lips, but it never fell. It just sat there, waiting for the right moment to strike the floor. The moment hadn't come yet, so it stayed. She decided to make a list of people she was glad weren't around to see this. Bukowski, Ginsburg, Marx, Collar, Rivera, Lenin, Lord, Kovac. It would simply disappoint them to know that the world hadn't changed, hadn't learned from its mistakes, hadn't stopped blowing things up, and hadn't stopped putting money into devices whose sole purpose is to blow things up. No, this was very inconvenient. So now the poet sits, trying to figure out a counter move, a checkmate, but all there is is words. Fuck, she said, as she pounded the keys a little slower. Fuck. And there it came. The only word worth saying in a time like this. It fell exactly where she thought it would, against the dust she never swept. It lay there, staring up at her, and again she considered sweeping it up, moving it out of the way, but it seemed pointless. It belonged on the floor, with the rest of her thoughts, snipping through the air like blank sheets of paper. This is another part. And it's, line, it's uh, got lines from Muriel Rokheiser's poem and instituted into it. As the lights darkened, as the lights of night brightened, if a shell is my memory, then let it be my home. Let it rest between bone and muscle, a soft place for dying. Let the wind carry me past, drop me in a hole covered with new earth. Make a plan for planting, build roots that matter. Light is important when you have none. Darkness is comforting when you have nothing else. We could try to imagine them. Try to find each other. I know the smell of the ground and the thunder it leaves. A long walk coming down, you might say things are not as they seem. The children get bubblegum in Iraq and sweatshirts. It's a birthday party and everyone gets 
By waiting for the candles, the storm that will blow them out over desert and fire, if we look hard enough, my imagination will find you in a tunnel. To connect, peace, to make love, to reconcile. If I make a whisper, the earth will swallow us. And sleep, I am in the middle of the street. The buildings come down. The dust rests on my skin, and I can't see the sky. It's gray when I want it to be blue and clear. Crystal is held in front of me. It redefines images, bounces them off one another into a new shape that tells your mind that you are not the only one. You are not the only one breathing this air. You are not the only one who sees things in sharp, delicate colors. Waking and sleeping ourselves with each other. Make the cup half. Cut the line between them and they become us. If I turn to you in sleep, in half-wake, in a time when I thought my hands could change things and the days become long rivers, make a pull for us. Shift position, turn into stars whose energy will save. This is not the first time I breathed a dream into the throat of night. Yeah. So let's light it up, shall we? Let's go to Santa Cruz. Life is wonderful, people are terrific. Would you like to find out why? Um, so this book is about kind of a young, drunk, punk, Chicana coming-of-age story set in the 90s in Santa Cruz and San Francisco and our heroine, Missy Fuego. Gets, she's 18, she gets a scholarship to go to this prestigious university. She's the first in her Mexican family to leave home and go to college from LA. And this is her journey. In order to pay for this prestigious school, since the scholarship isn't enough, she gets a job stripping. So she lives two worlds. She lives in San Francisco, where she's a sex worker, and then she lives in Santa Cruz, where she's also coming out and trying to be a good feminist, which in the 90s did not mean stripping. I want to make that very clear. It was, we weren't quite sex positive yet. So it was a very big secret, and uh, I'm just going to read a little excerpt of that. Excuse me. I have this cane, and it's always really interesting how we're going to... I can do it. There we go. Ha-ha. Ha-ha. So you ever just sometimes just do some shit, and you're like, ha-ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be your homework this weekend. <laughs> I just want you to look in the mirror and be like, ha, 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 ha. I'm fucking awesome. <laughs> so all you need to know at this point is that Missy's been in Santa Cruz for three weeks, and it's been really rough. It's been a rough time. It's been a lot of neo-Nazis and getting drunk in the park and not finding your way home. It's been rough. Now, now we're about in fall. And this story is called In Regards to Anarchy. It was a week after being chased by the skins. I decided that Santa Cruz was a pile of shit and that this whole college experiment was a big waste of my time. I was supposed to be in Seattle anyways. I was supposed to be in a band like Neil Sabata, but being smart fucked up all my punk rock plans. <laughs> and Ricky going to prison and my sister Esby getting pregnant again. And Nesto. Well, my brother Nesto really didn't do nothing. And doing nothing is its own stupid ass problem. So my parents laid this whole trip on me. I was supposed to be in a big burgeoning scene. Not being held up by knife going chased down by neo-Nazis. I was supposed to be in college 
really be in college. I wanted to dedicate myself, but the truth of the matter was that the school was also full of crazy-ass white people. The forest, the dark, it gets so dark in the forest. After being there almost six weeks, I was still stripping in the city on weekends. I thought I'd go norms and get a job at some coffee shop or restaurant, but every time I would leave the end of my shift, I felt cheated. I mean, I was pulling the same moves there to get tips that I was stripping out Michelle's Triple X back in LA and making far less money. That's really the kicker, the money. Don't let no one tell you different. Oh, I'm sure there's lots of girls out there who do it for a million other reasons, but I'm not one of them. I'm a shallow, get-rich-quick kind of bitch, and if dumb motherfuckers want my attention, they're just going to have to pay for it. It is just that simple. <laughs> I was walking down Pacific Avenue when I was going over all these deep thoughts, when a struggling white girl with a fucked up mohawk stumbled towards me. Now, when I say a fucked up mohawk, I am not playing with you. I mean, this shit was fucked up. Like, it was lopsided and cut by a three-year-old. <laughs> so this chick stumbles towards me, and she's like, What's your name? And I don't know, something in me finally snapped. Maybe it was the situation with the scans the week before. Maybe it was all the fucking rich hippies at college driving BMWs but don't seem to have enough money to wash our clothes or take a bath. Maybe it was just being 400 miles away from my neighborhood, from dark faces and all the realness I come to know as the only way to be down. I can't tell you. All I know is that the me, the real me, just came out. In all my straight up LA Mexican head swinging chola tub bitch of a girl attitude, I said, two inches from her face, what's your name? <laughs> she took a step back and just looked it at me. Then she smiled and said, I like you. <laughs> and thus began my friendship with one Anarchy Romeo. Anarchy was my true introduction to gutter punks. She had a squat underneath the San Lorenzo Bridge in the park behind the main downtown area. It was very organized and pretty quiet over there. She managed to rig up a series of waterproof tents with some foam cord and some well-tied sailor knots. It looked like a kid's fort or a clubhouse, but once you stepped inside, it was a nice-ass place to live. She even had cable TV. I didn't even have cable TV. I spent much of my time there, and to be honest, we didn't always sit around and talk. We would just sit, and I liked that. I was sick of the stupid college routine. We always had to come up with something brilliant or funny or interesting to say. That shit was nasty. I was, I was raised in a family where it was okay to be quiet and sometimes necessary because my pop worked nights and slept during the day. Do you want some? Anarchy asked, passing me some kind of crushed powder. No, I can't. We get drug tested because of the scholarship. Oh. And then she snorted, whatever it was, and we keep sitting. So I was thinking, you still want to score some money? Yeah, I need to. You're not going to make me steal, are you? Since when do I steal, she said. And she was right. She never had to steal. She just always had this way of getting what she wanted. She was always smiling and nice to people, and they never saw that coming from a girl like her. It was hard to say no to a smiling stranger. And men, there was this mystery she had with men. They would just give her shit without expecting anything. I know it sounds too good to be true, but I've been friends with her for almost a month, practically held up in that squat with her. And then there it would be, a bottle of Jaeger, drugs, clothes, smokes, food, $20 bills. These dudes, okay, men. Like the kind of men that come to the club, suits, straight up suits, would come down to this squat and they'd bring stuff 
by and talk for a while, and then leave. Until next time. So we're just going to skip ahead. And the gig that Anarchy tells her about is that they're going to basically go to this Baba Gori's house. And he's a tantra spiritual guy. And he wants to pay them to make out because he thinks it's a spiritual thing to watch them make out. <laughs> and so they decide they're going to do it because they don't have to fuck him or fuck each other. And he's paying them $500. So they think this is the best job they've ever had. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Okay, sorry. Uh, okay, so um, so they go they go to the mountains. Um, to uh, he lives in the mountains of Santa Cruz. Are you familiar with Santa Cruz? Right up by Highway 17. The bus truck. Yeah, let's just go there <laughs> right now. The bus dropped us off at the base of the mountain, which was really more like a giant hill. We walked up through trees, so many fucking trees, along this bike path. Finally, we reached a small clearing, and as we walked through it, there was Baba Whatever's house. Anarchy was right. It was amazing, huge, like a giant treehouse with lots of windows. I imagine that I want to come to terms with nature because this is probably what the future is going to look like after the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> you want some of this before we go in? Anarchy said, showing me some pills. Okay, fuck the scholarship, I think. Anarchy crushed the pills really fine with the blood under her knife. That was the 90s. We threw caution away. Then she took out a straw and we shot. It was a straight shot up my nose, and I was thankful because I couldn't get too fucked up by trying to shoot up more than once. What exactly is this guy's name anyway? I asked. I think it's Ed. <laughs> but he wants us to refer to him by his Baba name. What? What's that? Baba Gordy. You're fucking joking, right? I told you, it's all tantra spiritual shit. I wasn't sure I could keep a straight face calling him that, but for 250 bucks, I was willing to go the extra mile. We rang the doorbell, which sounded like a gong. Then a fairly well-built man in a skirt-like thing and long brown hair and a modest goatee came to the door. He just stood there for a second, smiling and looking at us. Anarchy gladly smiled, but I wasn't sure what to do. Then he put his hands together in front of him like he was going to pray. Namaste, he said. <laughs> Namaste, Anarchy said. We went inside. Baba Gori took us to the back of the house, to a giant open room with all kinds of statues and flowers. I think the statues were from India. The entire back wall wasn't a wall at all, but a giant window, and all I could see were trees. He didn't ask my name or even call Anarchy by hers, which was fine by me. This is where we will be practicing today. Do you ever dabble in Chandor? In Jam what? I said, Chandor. It's the study of gems and how they affect your life. <laughs> when Bobby spoke, his voice was slow and breathy, like a tantric Marilyn Monroe or a fucked up open mic. <laughs> Every word was pronounced with each syllable, like the act of talking itself was sex. It would have been sexy, but this was work. So it was just weird, and he was weird, and fuck, I was just a Chicana from South Central LA, so everything was either weird and or strange to me. <laughs> I picked out some sacred gems that I think will help us on this journey today. And what is our journey today, I asked. He just smiled and then began to take off his skirt thing. Whoa, 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 wait a fucking What do you think you're doing? Oh, don't worry, Lakasha. I'm only allowing my 
my vessel to be in its natural state. Lakasha, I said, my, of course, fiercely tweezed eyebrow raised. <laughs> yes, you are Lakasha. I met you in your past life. You are a great communicator, diplomat, and artist from 840 BCE. I know we have met before when I looked into your eyes back at the front entrance. But that was many lifetimes ago. <laughs> you probably don't remember now. Yeah, she has a bad memory for my five problems. Baba Gloria pushed on the floor, and then we were like, full on wrestling and everything. 
moment. And she took some of the blood from her lip, stood up, and left it across her chest. Also, very 90s. Alan's brand is We sat through many years of people doing <laughs> She then got on all fours and crawled towards me. I was ready for her to fucking kick my ass. But instead, when she reached me, she took my face in her hands and kissed me very sweetly. She kissed me again and again, and we went back to making out, and then she sat back on the floor and pulled me on top of her. We were directly in front of Baba Gore, who was crying a little. <laughs> and the two of us kept touching each other and kissing, and then she looked at me again, or she looked into me. We just looked at each other for a while while she put her hand on my heart and then took my hand and put it on hers. Then it got quiet, all kinds of quiet. After a few more lifetimes, Baba Gori finally stopped rocking and returned to just sitting, being still. Then he opened his eyes. Thank you, Nakasha and Trinasa. Thank you for letting me bear witness to your ancient struggle. I feel that your past lives are finally at peace. This has been a good practice, he said in his original tantra voice. Baba Gori got up, put his skirt thing back on, and invited us to dress our vessels. We cleaned up in the bathroom. He walked us to the door again, gave us the money, and gave us the gems from the sacred room to remember what you had done today. I said, I can forget. He shut the door. We walked down the mountain, not speaking. I put my gem in my pocket, so I wouldn't lose it. I decided I never wanted to lose it. Anarchy took hers and threw it into the forest. Why did you do that? I said, it's just glass. Don't worry, it's not fucking worth anything. She smiled. Don't you want to keep it? Why? It's just some glass from some guy. I know another guy we can do this with. <laughs> I was walking ahead, making sure she didn't see that I cared. I'm just gonna read a couple more stories and you guys enjoying yourselves? Yeah. I told you we're gonna have a fucking good time. Come on now. <laughs> I know, you guys were like, oh shit. Hi mom and dad, how's it going? Yeah, thanks for that tuition check. Oh, what did it go toward? Well, today I went to a reading where I saw a tattooed half naked lady talk about the trees and that. <laughs> See you at Thanksgiving. Okay. <laughs> this is the chapter that comes after this chapter, and it's called Fossils. Anarchy and I became a tag team act, a dirty, fucked up duet. She knew more babas, lots more. Santa Cruz was apparently full of baba dudes and they were all willing to pay top dollar for our act. Dude, I thought you were really gonna knock my tooth out that time. Anarchy chuckled as we slid down the side of Highway 17, fresh from another successful act. Don't tempt me, I said annoyed. What the hell is your problem, she sneered. Nothing. 
We continued sliding down the hill, several steps in front of each other. After pulling these hustles, I realized that something was happening to me. Each time I locked eyes with her, I was giving something away. At first, I didn't know how to feel about it. It was just a hustle, a gig, work. But lately, it felt different. Hey, can you slow the fuck down? Anarchy shouted to me. Why don't you speed the fuck up, I said. She finally caught up to me at the bottom of the hill, walking up the side of the highway. Look, you're being a real fucking bitch right now, she began, a little hazy. I knew she'd been doing heroin. I saw her work to the squat earlier, and I knew it was probably the heroin that thought I was a fucking bitch. Anarchy never got mad at me, never got mad at anyone. I never even heard her raise her voice before now. What? I said. You know what? You're being such a fucking baby right now. Really? Really? That's, that's how I'm being. I guess you just know everything, don't you? I know a fucking jealous person when I see one, she said. Jealous? Yeah, yeah, you're jealous that these fuckers want me all the time. You're jealous because you know that if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't even have this gig. Are you fucking serious? I shouted. I walked ahead, faster, away from her. What a fucking drug addict, I thought. To think that I was jealous of the attention these fucks were giving her? It was unbelievable. You are so fucking delusional, I said. It's true, isn't it? Well, you know what? Fine then. Fuck you. Be a jealous whore. She pushed me. I pushed her back. She pushed me again. Then I pushed her hard, and she lost her footing and fell against some rocks, her face hitting the pavement. There was blood, lots of blood from her mouth. And then she held up her hand with what looked like a tiny white pebble in it and smiled at me. You did it. You finally did it. You knocked that fucking tooth out of me. <laughs> I got down on the ground beside her. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean to do that. I pleaded. Then she kissed me. She kissed me so soft, just like we did at the end of every hustle. Don't. Don't. I whispered. She kept kissing me. The taste of her blood in my mouth like a sweet medicine. I kept kissing her till I fell on top of her when we just made out right there on the side of the highway, only a few speeding cars passing. I could see the light fading into the trees. It was going to be dark soon, and we were still three miles from the squat. Stop it. Just let go for once. Stop thinking, she said, pulling my face back to meet hers. I'm so tired of thinking. I said. Anarchy pulled a small bottle of pills out of her pocket, sat up, and started crushing them with her knife. She passed me the powder and a straw. Here. Let's just be here. Right now. I shot. It was a straight shoot. I laid in the dirt and leaves next to her. I was chasing the shadows above me with every slow breath. Anarchy huddled against me. Her swollen mouth was pulsing against my neck while we wrapped ourselves around each other. It was dawn when I woke up. I looked down, and I was alone. I sat up quick and realized what a stupid move that was, since it made me dizzy as fuck. I looked at my watch, 6 a.m. I kept rubbing my eyes, almost in disbelief, that I not only spent the night in the scary-ass forest, but that I was alone, too. 
Hey, Anarchy said, coming up behind me. Fuck, girl, oh my god, I thought she left me here. So quick on that all leaves. Since when do I leave you anywhere? Come on, I know a place where we can go get some food. I got up and we walked. We did what we always did, walk and not speak. This happened after every hustle, the morning after every puncture or all night binge. It's the unspoken moment of silence amongst thieves. After about an hour and 15 minutes, we reached downtown. I was starving, remembering that I hadn't eaten since the afternoon before. We walked to the back door of a bagel shop, one of the suits that comes by the squat. He saw us through the screen door. Hey, Ted, got anything for us to eat? Just stay here, Ted said. We waited about five minutes. He came back with a brown paper bag. You gotta get out of here, Jenny. I'll try to come by and check on you later, Ted said. We took the bag to the squat. It was full of bagels, cream cheese, juice. We ate, and again, it was silent. Anarchy pulled some cash out of her pocket and handed me some crumpled bills. These are yours. Your real name is Jenny? I asked. Sometimes, she replied. <laughs> when? When I feel like it. When guys like Ted are real nice to me and don't expect anything, then that's when my name is Jenny. We kept eating. I didn't even know what day it was, but I had a sneaking suspicion that I was supposed to be getting ready to go to the city and dance later that night. You gotta go. It's Friday, she said. Yeah, I do. Here, it's yours. You earned it. She handed me her tooth with a crooked smile on her face. I can't take that. Why does it gross you out? A little. Well, it's weird. Everything about me is weird, Missy. Duh. Please, you're the one that rattled it loose in the first place. You have a mean right hook. Okay. I put the tooth in my pocket. See you when I get back, okay? Anarchy just sat there, her back to me, smoking a cigarette. Monday came, and I got into Santa Cruz late morning. I didn't have a class until the afternoon, so I quickly headed over to the squat to see Anarchy. I managed to make a little extra money, and thought we could go spend it at the liquor store, but when I reached the bridge, it was empty. The squat was gone. There was just one tarp and some rope hanging off the side of the bridge. The wind blowing it gently towards the sky, I stood for a minute, confused. My first instinct was that the cops came by and picked her up for squatting, or drugs, or some bullshit. I went back to Pacific Avenue, to the metro station, where a lot of the gutter bunks and homeless kids hang out. I saw Bob, one of the punks that I met through Anarchy. Hey dude, you seen Anarchy around? Nah, nah man, she's gone. What? Did she get arrested or something? Nah, nah, nothing like that. She bailed. We smoked some shit, and then she got on a Greyhound. When? I don't know. A few days ago? Something like that. Hey, Missy, do you have 50 cents or a dollar? I really need to get to Natural Bridges. Yeah. Yeah, man. I gave Bob money. A couple bucks. Then I walked back to the bridge. There was no note. No sign that she'd ever even really been there. I just sat there listening to the people walking above the boards above me. I didn't cry. I didn't feel anything. I opened the pocket of my jean jacket. I pulled out Anarchy's tooth. It was still pretty white, considering I never saw her brush her fucking teeth. It sparkled a little against the mid-morning sun. 
held it in my hand. The only proof I had that any of it even existed. Then I dug up some loose dirt to bury it. A small grave. Then I walked. Um, this is a small chapbook that I made. Um, I also made zines, and I did. I had a big zinester thing in my class. Um, if you guys are ever curious, my office is 240. I'm here Mondays and Wednesdays. And I bring my little zine stuff, and I can sit in my office and make zines. And I create a nice little safe, safe space. And what I like to call it is not office hours, but stitch and bitch. <laughs> I will stitch, and you can bitch. And I will listen and hold all of your stuff in my office in my safe little place. And, and by the end of it, you'll have a little zine. And if that would be warm and, and fuzzy to you, I'm in my office Mondays and Wednesdays from 2 to 3. Come see me. This story was published in Low Star Quarterly, which is a well-known uh, queer online magazine. It used to be run by the guys who ran Last Gasp Press, which is sadly not quite happening. But they, they first published a story, and it's called Because Jimmy Wore It. Pop quiz, he said. He sat back on the living room sofa, the TV remote in one hand and the Budweiser in the other. He still had his work boots and pants on, and his hair laid flat against a small black fishnet. Come on, ask me a question about Jimmy. I bet you my dick and balls I know the answer. He would keep going like this until one of us, either me, my older sister Lena, or anyone who happened to be around, would answer him. Mario was Linda's husband, and he loved Jim Morrison. Often we were subjected to more Jim Morrison trivia than any of us cared for. It usually came from when he was drunk, which was every day. But really, it came from anything. An ad on TV, a car from the shop he worked on, the leather jacket he hung delicately in the hallway closet, his secret jacket, I used to call it, because he wore it only when he thought he was alone. The jacket. Mario claimed was Jimmy's. Stolen right under the nose of a thrift store owner off of Santa Monica Boulevard back in 1977. Mario would always say how the store owner was dumber than a donkey's dick. How he didn't even know it was Jimmy's jacket. But Mario was smart, was smart enough to have recognized it. Back from when he first saw the doors at the Whiskey A-Go-Go back in 1968. The jacket was all fine and good. I always wished it would end there, with the secret jacket hanging on a special wooden hanger. But it was only a decoration to the elaborate Jimmy Shrine that, <clears throat> excuse me, Mario harbored for almost 20 years. Missy, he would say to me, ask me a question, chica. If I get it wrong, I'll give you five bucks. But if I'm right, and you know I'm right, you gotta rub my feet on your knees. Mario, don't make her do that, my sister would say. Shut up, Linda, you ain't playing today. <laughs> now, Missy, pop quiz, chica. Okay, I'd say, my side annoyance always invisible to him. In what year did the Doors first play at the now historic Whiskey A-Go-Go? <laughs> oh, damn it, girl, you ain't even trying to challenge me. He took a big sip of his beer and answered, 
You stay and deal with your fucking sister. Tell me she better stop bleeding or I'm leaving you all in the fucking van. You got that? He grabbed the kid's hands and ran across the parking lot to the ticket window. I found some napkins in the glove box and placed them to my sister's lip. Thank you, Meha, she said. I held them in place. Remember that applying pressure to any wound would help it to stop the bleeding. The sun fell against the buildings of Sears and Mervyn's while Jimmy's voice stays stuck in my head. Riders of the storm. Riders of the storm. Pop quiz, he said. He put the bottle down long enough to look in my direction. I said, pop quiz, chica. He repeated, go on, ask me a question. My sister stood, hiding into the dishes. I knew how many nights her tears mixed with the dishwater, me never asking her, never wanting to cause trouble. But as I watched her wash the same plate for the third time, I finally allowed myself to feel what had been building in my small chest all those nights. Okay, I said, pop quiz. What is my sister's favorite color? What? My question wiped the smirk off his face for at least a few seconds. I said, what's my sister's favorite color? He took a swig from the bottle, turned to my sister. What the fuck is she talking about, Inga? My sister fell deeper into the water. I don't know, Mario. I don't know. Look, he said, ask me questions about Jimmy. If you're not going to play the game right, then I'm not going to play with you, stupid. Just answer the question, and I will. What? I stood up from the table and stood next to my sister. I wasn't counting on her for protection. I just wanted to be near her, to hear his answer with me. Maybe you didn't hear me. I said, what's my sister's favorite fucking color? Linda, she's yelling at me. You better tell her to lower her voice. Just answer the question, I screamed. Or how about this? What's her favorite cereal? Her middle name, her favorite anything. Mario stood up and threw the bottle against the wall. You see, Linda, you see? This is exactly what happens when you raise a child in a vulture house. If she was raised in a real Mexican house like me, she would have gotten her ass kicked for talking to me like that. Just answer the question, I said. You know what happens when you don't answer. He stood from the table, threw his chair, and came towards me. He stopped just short of my face. And he stood, the whiskey from his breath between us. He was trying to make me flinch. I didn't. But my sister broke a dish. I was waiting to see who would throw the first punch. It's purple, I said. Her favorite color is purple. Her favorite cereal is Rice Krispies with brown sugar, and her middle name is Maria, after our mother. I was fighting back tears because I would never let him see me cry. I know this too was my sister's daily victory, crying in the dark bathroom or the hallway or the backyard when she thought no one was looking. But I was always looking, always missing. Mario still stood before me. I was the one who threw the first punch and he knew I beat him. And then my sister's voice came into the kitchen, her face still in the sink, clutching the broken plate. If you do anything to her, I'm telling my dad. 
It was my sister's second blow that stung him the most, but I felt glorious. We were a team, the team I always knew could take him on. I waited for war, for my sister to take a flag, put it to her chest, and claim herself. I waited for her to tell him we were leaving and never coming back, but the script changed. Right when I thought it was over, Mario said, staring at me, Linda, take this little bitch home, and when you come back, clean up this fucking mess. He walked away into the darkness of the hallway, then slammed the bedroom door. I turned to my sister. I wanted her to know that none of it mattered because tonight we won. She went into the living room and got her purse. The car ride home was long, even though the drive was only 10 minutes. It was two in the morning, and I was wondering how we were going to explain my coming home so late. Linda? Not now, Mika. Please, shut up. I just want to know what we're going to tell mom and dad about my coming home. You're sick, she said. You don't feel well. When we reached the driveway, I cried. I thought she would cry with me. But she just said, see you later, alligator. As I entered the house and slid into my bed, I worried about what my sister might come home to. I later found out that he left and spent the night at his girlfriend's house. My sister slept in the big bed, her three children wrapped around her. And I'm gonna end with these short, really short poems. really short and then we're done and I'd love to hear from all of you thank you for staying and I'm in office 240 if you ever want to say to this <laughs> this is from a new book I'm working on called 51 poems about nothing at all and it's my next book and it's poems and uh, this is called some good times well, and this, they don't have numbers but I'll know <laughs> what <laughs> My students are laughing because I'm always like, you guys need to do page numbers, and you guys really need to frame your work, and I'm like, I'm not doing any of this. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> Christmas in Portland, the two of us, broke, no friends, one of the worst winters in 10 years. We had about $10 between us, the TV going in and out on one of the only channels we could get, a roaring fireplace with Christmas music. We played a game we made up called Heat, where you do nothing but talk about how hot it is in all the warm places you're going to go. The Bahamas, Cuba, Hawaii, Mexico. And we were still so in love then. I believed every word. Two, touring. I was 23, East Coast with a burnout hippie poet guy named Rose who claimed to fuck Allen Ginsberg in 1976, <laughs> and a drunk punk British chick named Stella who lived in a shack by the sea. The night before we left, Rose's wife was in the kitchen. She never spoke to me that night, but she hugged me, not too loose, not too tight, a perfect embrace. She made popsicles for breakfast, had big feet and frizzy red hair, and spent the day doing color-by-number pictures with delicate colored pencils. Three, and this is the last one, and it has a name. It's called Showtime. It wasn't all bad. 
My mother would go into her jewelry box, pull out $20, the rabbit out of the hat. We'd eat Burger King, and I'd look down at my feet hanging off the seat. The sun would be out. All you could hear was traffic and taste the afternoon. I never asked why we were there on a Tuesday, why she wasn't at work, why she didn't ask me about my homework, why one of my socks was missing, why. We just kept eating, and she kept smiling, and I never knew about the late bills, the evictions, my father not calling for months. She really was a magician, my mother. It was the greatest show on earth. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me. Can you take some questions? Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Um, 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 yes, in the back. How, every time I hear poetry live, I'm always struck by how dense the language is, because obviously a poet puts thought into every word they uh, choose. But I find sometimes when I'm reading poetry, I doubt whether the people hearing get every single word choice, how do you balance that feeling of like wanting the audience to get it, but also wanting to write something meaningful? <laughs> That's a really good question. That's actually the project of a spoken word artist. <laughs> That's like the total project of a spoken word artist. Because what, you know, what happened, you guys, was when we were doing this show in the 90s, we never thought it would be published in a new university. We never thought it was going to be like taken seriously. It was always like an art of urgency and immediacy. So I want to make that clear too. Because you said, oh, you know, um, a poet puts like intention into every word they choose. With a spoken word artist, we get to get away with that shit. Because we're talking. So we get to decide where the emphasis is going to go. And we get to decide if we're going to mumble that line or make it clear to you. So I think the best way to do it is read your work. You need to start reading your work. It needs to be like, the best way to describe it is it needs to become a muscle memory for you as a poet. Does that make sense? Yes. You need to develop that muscle. And you only develop that muscle by reading your work. Then you have that reaction, and you understand how the words are working. So even if you aren't a spoken word person, or you don't like to read your work, you understand that when a person's reading it, they react. Right? We don't see that reaction on the page. We see it live. But that's why it's like I try to teach my students. Like I tell them, I'm like, I know this class will be very karate kid. And I'll have you painting fences and waxing cars. You'll have no fucking idea why you're doing it. And then one day I'm going to try to punch you in your face. And then you're going to wax on, wax off. That's literally, as cheesy as it sounds, that really is how I think poets develop voice. They have to do it that way. So my advice to you is take a risk, start reading your work, start understanding how words sound, how syllables sound, how they sound when they come out of your mouth. So when you read them, that's how we're hearing it. And I hope that answers your question. Thank you. You're very welcome. Does that answer your question? Yes. Wonderful. 240 Stitch and Bitch, we can talk about it any other time you want. I'm trying to get this thing going, y'all. I got beans to make. I got a tour next year, Stitch and Bitch, y'all. Mom. Anyone else? Question? Yes. I want to know this. What's the name of your book again
This title is literally, I told Ariel when we were interviewing and literally becoming best friends overnight. Um, I said, you know that's like really what I said to my mom? Like I was estranged from my mom. So the story of, of Missy Fuegos is fiction, but it is based on me. But I was estranged from my mom for almost a year for coming out. And this is what a lot of queer people face, especially Chicanos. And uh, my mother was just not having it. And I said, well, I don't fucking care. Because I was gosh, and what did I do? Fuck you, bye-bye. You know, I really was like, I'm not, you know, I also grew up very abused. Despite like having a really great childhood and these parents, I also was very abused. So I didn't want secrets, I didn't want to hide. So I left, and we were estranged, and then, you know, there's that part, I think, when you're estranged from somebody, anybody, where you feel sick. And you miss them, and then you stupidly think you should contact them. And I sent my mom a postcard very drunk, and all I wrote was, Life is wonderful, people! <laughs> 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 story, my mom sent us a postcard, and we were supposed to use it for the cover, because it was so... When my editor saw this, she was like, you are just not a game, like, you're not a joke. Like, <laughs> you saved this? And I was like, I mean, I can't believe she saved it. She saved it. And when I asked her, she said it was the first contact I had from you in nine months. You know, I just saved it. And it was on the cheesiest, like, Santa Cruz postcard. It was like, it was like one of those montages of, like, the Lord God. And people are like, you know, like, you know, doing things like this. And I'm like, life's wonderful. People are And I, like, barely came out. <laughs> this is the funniest part. It's like, yeah. I was so stupid and drunk. I was like, yeah, sounds right. <laughs> my mom was like, I didn't know what the last word was, but your dad said, it's totally fake. I think it's totally fake. <laughs> so that's the name of the book. Like, now you'll never forget it, right? <laughs> I was like, people are tripping. What else do you have for me? My poor students, they hear me say that all the time. What else? <laughs> they say one thing and then it gets quiet and I'm like, what else? <laughs> I guess you guys just see queer Chicana sex workers every damn day, don't you? <laughs> That's all right. Uh, it's cool. It's cool. <laughs> yes? Uh, are you going to be teaching another class next quarter? Well, that's a question for not me. <laughs> <laughs> not next quarter, but hopefully soon. That's how it looks. Like for me. Was there a hand over here? I see phantom hands a lot too. <laughs> okay, you've got stuff for some. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. Are you working on your next piece in that meantime that you're not teaching? I'm sorry? Uh, what are you going to be doing in the time that you're not teaching? Well, I'm hoping to tour Life is Wonderful, People are Terrific. When does uh, that start? Um, hopefully, it'll start in February. And I will tour, hopefully, with Sailor, who you all met. Okay, I have Conchita Queen, Sailor Gonzalez, the homegirl from South LA, who is my baby girl. She's like my daughter I never had. I love her. She makes scenes, and you, all, you should all find her. Um, you know, last weekend we went and saw Sandra Cisneros. How many of you know that name? Okay, you're all looking it up today. Okay, she is one of the last living Chicana writers of the generation that I was taught from. Gloria has died. Shetty is alive, but Sandra is somebody that is really unique, and we were just having this moment, it was me, her, and Sailor, and I, it just dawned on me, like, I'm actually standing here with three generations of Chicano writers, and I, I kind of just can't 
leave because it's happening. So that's really pushing me to tour because I haven't toured in five years. I was diagnosed with lupus, that's why I'm on this cane, and I live with lupus and fibromyalgia. So I haven't toured for five years. I've just kind of been dealing with being sick, coming to terms with being handicapped. I'm very new to being handicapped. I've only been this way two years. So I'm learning a lot too. But I'm ready, and we'll, we'll tour Life is Wonderful. I'm also working in pre-production. Um, Life is Wonderful has been asked to be a feature film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. Um, just, I, I don't have any idea when it will be coming out. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you writing the screenplay? I am. Fuck yeah. I'm fucking insane.
And, I, and I'm also going to say, you know, I work with a lot of uh, young Chicana mujeres in East LA. I work with Confuerza Collective, we're a Chicana feminist collective out of East LA. And I spend a lot of time with people who would just would do anything to have the opportunity you have. So that also keeps me very rooted in my work. So what I would say is, on your time off, Michael, on your time off, you know, go to your root. You, you know, go to your root. Now I'm going to go to my root. I'm going to go to New York. I haven't been there in a while. And I'm excited. And um, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm hoping that this will be nominated for Amanda. So I'm hoping I'll be returning. I want to win. That's pretty much like what I declared. I'd like to declare that I want to win. And then Sandra was like, yes, let's declare it. And so I'm declaring that I would, I would like to. But that is what I'll be up to. Any other questions? About anything, you can ask me questions about 90s, right, girl stuff, 90s, whatever. Maybe you're over the 90s, that's fine. <laughs> anything else? Any other questions I have? So, um, in your book, yeah. you're this book, right? Like, yes. wonderful? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, you use yourself as a character, mm -hmm. and I was wondering, as a writer, how do you detach yourself from your character mm -hmm. self? I created Missy Poigal the way Charles Bukowski created Hank Chinaski. I created what's called an alter ego. I created her. I decided that Missy had to be, you know, this part of myself that is always there. Are you guys familiar with that? Do you, do you familiar with Bukowski and his work? Anyone? You ever heard of Charles Bukowski? Um, so you so you know that Hank Chinaski is how he writes about himself, okay? Um, so basically what I did was at first, I, when I first started this, I didn't start it as a novel. I wrote in regards to anarchy as a nonfiction story for Perverts Put Out, which is an erotic reading series led by Dr. Carol Queen and the Center for Sex and Culture in San Francisco. It's a queer reading series. And they liked it so much, Carol was like, I really want you to write into this. It should, it should be a, a longer story. So I started writing all these stories about Santa Cruz. I thought Santa Cruz was the story, okay? I thought, I'm going to make this nonfiction book about stories from Santa Cruz, and that'll be it. But the more I wrote about it, I realized the story wasn't Santa Cruz. It was Missy Fuego. Missy Fuego was the story. She became this complete loser that I couldn't help but adore. And not because she was me, but because she wasn't me anymore. So I had to love her. And I realized that, you know, I spent a lot of time with, like I said, with a lot of young Chicanas, very young, like 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. And they felt like they didn't have a hero. They love Sandra, they love all these writers, but they're like, I'm not gonna be some wife having 10 kids, like living on Mango Street, like that's not <laughs> my life. You know, that's not, I didn't speak to them. I started thinking like, you know, I love the Carnella Sandra very much. You know, I've known her a long time, but I also didn't gravitate to her as a writer. I gravitated to Gloria. I wanted the real shit. And Gloria was saying the real shit, you know? So my point in that is, I realized Missy was the story. And then I said, okay, I'm gonna write into Missy. And then it didn't feel like I was writing about myself. Does that make sense? I realized I was just writing about her as a character. Now, 75% of this book is true. 25% is not. Does it matter? I don't think so. 
I think, you know, it stands better as a novel than a nonfiction story, personally. It stands better because I wrote fiction, so I allowed Missy redemption. There were chances at redemption for her ass that maybe in real life she didn't quite get. And that was a big deal to me. So when I created the character, I said, this is 18, and I'm also, you know, 37 now. So be careful if you're trying to write about yourself and you're like, I'm going to write my memoir, and you're 21. <laughs> Unless you lived a life like Precious Jones, and like, seriously, where like, you like saw some shit by 21, and like, you can actually detach from yourself at 21 that much, like, it really isn't common. But I was twice my age at this point, so I was like, Missy was literally like another person. So she already was a character to me. Does that make sense? It was like another lifetime ago. So that also made it easy. So I guess my advice would be choose something that one you can access. You need to tap in. Okay? You gotta look at what you're doing and you gotta you gotta detach so much and say, really, what's the fucking story? Where is it? And then you have to be willing to accept if it's not something you planned on. I accepted it. I was relieved, actually. I found it easier to write about Missy Fuego than to write about Santa Cruz. That was too much. And that's why I think Missy was the jewel out of there. That's a character. So that was how I did it. And like I said, it just wrote itself. Like she took, as you can see, her voice is so established in this book because I just let her take control. You're welcome. Final note, I also had six, six, seven years to let that character develop. And that's something you all need to think about. A lot of you have these grand, incredible projects, but you are so impatient. I mean, your characters are like people, okay? You can't just like walk up and be like, I know you. <laughs> I know you! Like, it's like that with characters. You can't expect a reader to be like, I know now. I know this person. It's the same thing with you as a writer. So treat your characters as investments. Treat your characters as you would real people. Invest in them. Invest in their lives. I was very invested in Missy. I went to places I really didn't want to go to as a writer. So I could be invested in Missy. I went to very hard places. Places of rehashing old pain and also reimagining what could have happened had I had that knowledge. And I got to reimagine it in the book, you know? So really allow your characters to develop just like you'd let a relationship develop. You wouldn't get married in a day. I don't suggest it, some people do. I don't suggest it. Characters are the same way in a story. You know, you need to allow them to grow. The more you allow them to grow, the, the easier it gets to tell the story. Because then they're telling the story, right? It's like any great story. You, I was just talking to Martin about this today, one of my students and friends here. I said, you know, no one remembers the story. They always remember the character. They remember who tells the story, right? So think of that. Anything else? I have these zines for sale. They are a dollar. And I also have, I have like a mini mall. <laughs> I like to call it the corner store or the bodega. What's up? You can find anything.
or at a corner store. I've got, I do stencil work, I also do hand cut stencils, and I do zines and different things. So come visit me. 240 Stitch Bitch and a question. <laughs> <laughs> right when I'm like, bye, you guys, and the questions. Yeah. I think I do have a lot. Um, is there a question that you wish an audience would have asked you but no one ever has? That's a good one. Because sometimes I feel like that, that's a good one. That hasn't happened today. These are, these are actually questions I love. But a question no one's ever asked me that I've always wanted to is um, kind of like, I think if, if I was sitting and I was a student talking to me, <laughs> I would probably be like, in all the things that you've seen, like, I've always wanted someone to ask me, like, why don't you ever just shut up? Like, why aren't you done? <laughs> why aren't you done, bitch? Like, like aren't you done yet? <laughs> like, fuck. No one's ever asked. And I always thought if they asked that, I'd be like, am I? You tell me. Like, Dude, I want to retire at Sandra Cisneros in Mexico, yo. She lives large over there. But even she's touring. She's touring a book right now. She has a book. I'm advertising her because I want, you know, I want you guys to know these people. You're not getting enough of these writers in your curriculum. A house of my own. That is her collected works. But it's out. And I've always wanted someone to ask me that more. Seriously. Like, why don't you just, like, what is your topic? Why do you just, because I, in a lot of times, someone did ask me that. Why do you always talk about sex? And I was like, I actually never talk about sex. I wrote one fucking book, and all you guys decided all I do is talk about sex. I mean, I don't know. Because no one else is. Because I have these young heads where, like, I can't see myself in anything. And I'm not writing for them, but I kind of am. I'm, I just wanted to give them this book and be like, hey, yo, Missy Fargo's a big old mess. <laughs> it's all real. But yeah, I really wish people would ask me, like, when I'll stop. <laughs> Don't ask me. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to be over at the mini mall. And you can come find me.